not just relationships with believers, but unbelievers as well, people who don't affiliate with Christianity, who don't affiliate with, with church. And Jesus is going to give us three more things which matter in those relationships, and we'll wrap up again why by looking in verse 48, the end of chapter 5. <clears throat> now, as we walk through these, we've been seeing how Jesus has been illuminating and explaining the Word of God, particularly in the laws. He always begins in each new subject matter that you have heard that it was said uh, this lets us know that Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience, and he's defining the Word of God for the purpose that they may live according to what God said. Now, the Jewish people would have been familiar with the Word of God. They would have had it read to them every week. They uh, would have had most of it memorized. But Jesus is, is letting them know and letting us know it's a difference than having a familiar, familiarity with the Word of God and even knowing it. We must also understand what God is actually saying to us. Because Jesus is speaking to the people of God, it lets us know that these requirements are not for an unbeliever, but these are requirements are for us who have called upon the name of Jesus Christ. As talking to Jewish people, he's showing how all of God's people should live their life. And here's the first thing. The first thing, it's a matter of the heart. All of these things deal with heart issues and how we feel about people, how we see people, how we treat people, respond to people, talk about people, talk to people. It's all about our heart and where our heart is. The Bible says that everything comes from our heart, good and evil. And so whatever we have stored up in our heart, that comes out. And Jesus is pointing out it comes out in relationships with people. It's our heart which manifests itself and what we've been storing up in our heart that shows how we interact with believers and people of this world, what we're actually storing in there. The first subject Jesus is going to deal with this morning begins in verse 33. It deals with oaths, promises, and vows. And the word of the Lord says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil or the evil one. What Jesus is telling us right now is it matters what we say to people. In the Jewish way of life, there were two types of promises or statements you could make. You can make a binding promise. Now, a binding promise is when a Jew would go and say, in the name of the Lord, I promise I'm going to do this. They would call upon God's name because they had such a reverence for him. This promise was rarely given, but it was a binding promise. You didn't have to have a contract drawn up. It was simply the word of the Lord and God within that statement that held you to whatever you promised or said you were going to do. And that actually could be brought forth into a Jewish court. It was to set a statement in stone. It was legally binding. Binding. But again, the Jewish people had such a reverence for God's name, they rarely gave these sort of promises or oaths or vows. And so that means there was also a non-binding promise or statement you could make. A non-binding promise was anything a Jewish individual said, but they did not attach God's name to it. So in our day and age, we could say, yes, of course, I'm going to come to your wedding. But if we were a Jew... 
We wouldn't be lying if we didn't go to the wedding because we didn't say, as God is my witness, I'm coming to your wedding. In other words, the Jews believed that you could promise something, but as long as you didn't put God's name in that promise, you, weren't, you didn't have to adhere to what you said. Therefore, they could promise anything. And they could put their parents' name on it. They could put their own name on it. They could put their house's name on it, their wife's names, their kids, their cattle, whatever. And then they would not have to live up to that promise or that vow as long as God was not attached to it. So this could cause problems. Because people could say anything and then say, well, I never said in the name of the Lord. I never said as God is my witness. And you could promise anything you wanted, but you didn't have to keep your word. And what Jesus does here is he reveals that all promises, and not just promises, but all things that we say are under God. He's making this statement as he pulls from passages of the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, we read, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. In Psalm 89, 11, The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it, you have founded it. This means that everything we say, what Jesus is telling us, everything we say, whether it's a promise, whether it's a statement, whether it is a joke, is under the authority of God. That's why it matters what we say to people. Even if we aren't proclaiming the gospel message, we represent the gospel message, which is truth. So what we say should always be truth. The Bible teaches that Jesus says, do not take an oath in all in verse 34. He's not saying that we shouldn't give promises. Instead, he's saying that let simply what you say be yes or no. Anything more than that is from evil. It's from the evil one. You know, we give promises all the time. We promise our spouse that we're going to love them for better or worse till death do us part. You promise your employer that you're going to do the job that they're paying you to do. We promise people to provide a service to us, that we're going to pay them for that service. Jesus is saying we must be mindful, though, what we actually say to people. It doesn't matter whether we promise something or we're just saying something verbally, which was the standard of this day. It doesn't matter if we sign a contract or not. We must always say what we mean. We must always speak truth. And all things that come out of our mouth are to be binding because all things are under God who is in heaven. The earth is God's footstool, Jerusalem is God's city, and our lives belong to God, which means our words do too. With our words, Jesus reveals the authority is not just in our words, but the authority is with God. The Bible teaches us in numerous places not to worry about tomorrow. Not to, to get overwhelmed about what may happen tomorrow, what it may bring. Sometimes, not even to plan for it, but to focus on what's going on in this moment. For the Jewish people, they would compartmentalize their problems. And Jesus is teaching them and us, God's people must be trustworthy people. If people cannot trust believers in what we say, then why should they trust us when we present the gospel to them? If they can't trust our words or the promises we say we're going to keep, then they can't trust anything else that we present, even if it's the gospel truth. Teaching here is God's people must have a godly character. And since God is faithful to his word and his promises, so we must be as well. In verse 37, Jesus commands us to have a simplicity of speech. Let what you say be what you actually do. Because God's people are to be people of truth. And though we may be, be, there may be ways for us to get out of promises, 
As God's people who represent God, we should never look away for a way to get out of a promise, but to fulfill what we have said. If we can't be trusted with things that we say, then why can we be trusted when we present the gospel? The next section deals with retaliation, beginning in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not risk the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. According to the Old Testament, this is again where Jesus is pulling from. He says, you have heard that it was said. God's people could seek redemption, retaliation, reconciliation for different things. The statement Jesus is pulling from is several passages in the Old Testament. The book of Exodus chapter 21, it describes a retaliation for a loss or a harm to life. To sum it up, anything done by an individual to another, you should do it equally back. So if one of you all were to slap somebody really hard, then you should stand there and allow that person to slap you back just as hard. That's according to the Word of God. It's the same equal standards. Then you turn into the book of Leviticus that deals with killing an animal and another human being. The retaliation is life for life. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, it delivers the same instructions. The action of seeking retaliation was to give God's people a model on how to handle ethical and civil confrontations. These were laws given to the people of God so they would know how to respond to certain situations they might come across in life, but to do it in such a way that it would bring God glory. At the same time, they were given to keep God's people from seeking personal vengeance. Since God's people were a new nation when he delivered these laws, he's wanting them to know how to govern themselves under his authority. But the issue which emerged, as it does today, is people began to feel that they should retaliate for things they not, they not necessarily should retaliate, and so escalation would happen. And you find this in Scripture as there's family feuds and wars that break out. Jesus is not teaching us that we should be people who should be taken advantage of. We have rights just as any other person on this planet has rights. The purpose is for God's people to not think that their own rights or privileges are above others. But instead, God's people should focus on their citizenships as citizens of heaven while living on this earth and the responsibility to the people of this world as God's ambassadors. What Jesus is telling us is it matters how we respond to people. It isn't just in our words, which should be the evidence that we belong to God and we live differently, but it's our actions as well. And he's drawing out Jewish customs that we may not be familiar with, but we should become familiar with so we know what he's talking about. The first incident deals with uh, slapping the cheek. And this is weird because for the Jewish people, so the right side of their body was the, the side of power and authority. And so a Jewish person, when he would slap somebody, he wouldn't do an open-handed slap. Because if you slap, you'd slap on the left side. Well, that's not a sign of power and authority. So you do the backhanded slap, so you get the right cheek. This was the biggest sign of disgust and, and, and disrespect to any individual. They had such regulations that you could slap somebody with your left hand on the right cheek because that wasn't a hand of power and authority. And you could even slap with your right hand as an open hand on the left cheek because that was okay. But if you slap the right cheek, that's disrespectful. I heard a story of a preacher. He finished his sermon, and much like I do on Sunday mornings, he went back to the back doors, and as people were leaving, he was shaking hands. And when an individual came up to him and said, I can't believe you said that. 
He proceeded to slap the preacher in the face. So the preacher turned his other cheek. The guy slapped him again. Then the preacher looked the man in the eye, and the guy went for a third slap and hit on the preacher once again a third time. The preacher wheeled back and decked the guy. So I'm commanded two slaps, not three. Thank you. This isn't what Jesus is teaching. He isn't teaching that we can just take slap after slap after slap. Even if we are deeply insulted, what he's saying is that we should not seek retaliation. Instead, we are trying to defend ourselves. We turn to our ultimate defender, who is God. The psalmist points out this action repeatedly. It's not a statement to allow someone to repeatedly deliver blows, but instead of someone insults you, not to retaliate, but to allow God to defend you. Sometimes when people insult us, the problem we don't like is there's truth to it. And so we feel we got to stand up for ourselves and defend ourselves. And sometimes there's not truth. But if there's not truth, then let our model of life and our character and the way we treat people be the representation that what they say is false. The statement concerning the shirt and coat was a normal practice in Jewish courts. The shirt would be an inner garment, also known as the tunic. Individuals would have multiple shirts. Even slaves would have multiple shirts. But the coat was the outer garment. And most people only owned one coat. And so to give a shirt in a Jewish court, well, that was permissible. That was allowed. But Jesus is saying, if someone wants something from you, don't just give them what they are after, but give them something of value. It's to go above and beyond what is required of us or even being asked of us. Jesus drives this point home by the speaking of the one mile go the two miles in verse 41. The statement is taken between the context of the relationship between the Roman government and the Jewish people. In Jesus' day, the Roman government was in charge. And what they would do to make sure the Jewish people understood they were in charge, even though the Jewish people were in the land of Israel, is they would force them into labor. They would make them interrupt their lives make them stop doing whatever they were doing or what they needed to do in order to carry something, move something, or do something. It was just a reminder, you are a conquered people. And Jesus says, when we are asked to do something, we are to respect the authority that is over us and to do it willingly and cheerfully. When a government authority commands us to do something, we aren't to complain as God's people. We aren't to riot as God's people. We're not to protest, but we're to submit. Paul will write in his letter to the Roman believers who were living in Rome under Roman authority and being heavily persecuted. He writes this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. What is Jesus not saying? He's not saying when the government tells us to do something that is ungodly or goes against God's word, that we should do that. We find that example in Scripture. We are always to live by the word of God. Let it be our God. The purpose Jesus is doing is to point us to righteous living. What Jesus is saying is that we should not complain when the authorities that God has put in position tell us to do something which does not contradict God's word. We shouldn't complain about that. We shouldn't resist that. We shouldn't belittle them about that. We should do it willingly and cheerfully. 
We know that God is the ultimate authority in our lives, and in all things we adhere to him. And that means when the government tells us we must pay taxes, we must go on jury duty, and we must do something that is required of us as a citizen of this country, we submit because we're submitting to God. And we do it willingly and cheerfully. As God's people, we need to be a place where we are willing to give ourselves our stuff and our reputation. That way people who do not know God can see the glory of God coming out of our lives through our words and our actions. The going the extra mile flows into Jesus' final teaching of this chapter. Beginning in verse 43, the word of the Lord says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? God never gives us permission in his word to hate but that was the national attitude of the Jewish people. Anybody who was an enemy of God, they hated it. And you can see this image if you go and read in the book of Jonah. You know why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh? Because they were Assyrians. The Assyrians had just conquered the people of Israel. The people of Israel hated the Assyrians. And Nineveh was a big city of corruption. Jonah hated them. That's why he didn't want to go. He, he, he was a racist. And when God told him to do something, he fought because he knew God was a God of grace and mercy. And if these people actually repented, then God would release them and he would forgive them. We're never told to hate anyone. Jesus says our attitude as God's people should be one of love. To love people we did along with, and here's the hard one, to love people we don't get along with. It matters how we love people, and that means all people. As God's people, we're called to live differently. That's not just in the church. That's not just with our family, but with all people of the world. It allows the righteousness of God to be revealed through his people. As we mentioned last week in verse 47, that word Gentiles in this particular context is referring to the people who are not God's people. Today, it would be those people who are not believers, and Jesus is telling us something I think we already know if we sat down and thought about it. Anybody can love someone they did along with. Anybody can love someone that's in their inner circle, those people you trust. But God says you, as my people, are to love all people because God loves all people. So we can't limit our love because we are called to shine God's love, which is not to be limited or confined Last week, Richard Campbell and I got in a conversation where I confessed something to him I must confess to you. <clears throat> I have bashed this president and this administration more than I've prayed for them. I've spoken harshly about the president, and, and I'd be fair, I, I did the same about the president before him and some of the things he did, but and I confessed that to Richard Campbell and because we were talking about things we were saying that were not pleasing to God. And Here's, here's the reality that came out as I, I confessed that, because it's not godly, it's not holy, it doesn't shine his goodness. I, I really doubt President Biden, and I really doubt the administration he has around him, 
cares what a pastor in Stratford, Missouri is saying about him. I really doubt it changes his opinion or his actions. But what I do know, because God's Word tells me, that I can complain, I can bash about people and, and, and show that I don't love them or care for them, and that's not going to change a thing, but prayer will. Prayer will change things, because we lift it up to the Almighty God. And whether it's the president, whether it's the administration, whether it's just someone in your life, someone at work, a friend at school, a classmate, the next time Satan comes to you to tempt you to bash someone, to speak badly about them, to backstab them, hold your tongue and pray. You see, us having evil intentions towards another individual or group of people, it may or may not change something. But it's definitely going to impact our heart, and it's definitely going to impact our worship of God. The final verse in chapter 5 we looked at last week very briefly. It's a summary of what everything Jesus has been saying up to this point. Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this is why it matters how we feel about people. It matters why, how we see people, how we treat people. It matters what we say about people, how we respond to people, how we love people, because it matters because we are God's people. As God's people, God has set us apart for himself so we might bring him glory through our relationship, not only with him, but get this in chapter 5, with people. To bring God glory in our relationships with people, those we like those we did along with and those we don't. As I mentioned last word, week, the word perfect here means to be complete, finished, reaching maturity. What Jesus is commanding us and teaching us is as God's people, we must be perfect because this is who God created us to be. This is who he saved us to be and made us to be. The Bible tells us we are created in the image of God. You know why we're created in the image of God? So we can bear God's image in this world. The Bible calls us Christians, which means to be a little Christ and to be like Christ, so we can be the image of Christ in this world. To be perfect is to be godly. It's to be Christ-like. And the action Jesus teaches us here in chapter 5 is, is guidance on how we should walk in life and live our life and what our life should look like. It reveals this high standard that God has calling us to live out as his people. And though we're saved by grace and by faith alone in Christ, it does not eliminate our calling to live a certain way. And we'll see in the next chapter, in chapter 6, that this isn't so others can applaud us as the Pharisees and scribes wanted people to look at the way they lived and thought they were so holy and righteous. Rather, we're to do this because it is the response to the perfect love of the Father. In the Old Testament and New Testament, we find this command over and over again that God's people are to be holy because God is holy. This is a command not just in our private relationship with God, but in our public relationships with people. We do this before the world, even though they may backstab us, even though they may take advantage of us and bash us as Christians. But we're told in Scripture, we do this so they may see our good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, here's the question we must answer. How is our relationship with people in our life? How is your relationships with the people that God has put into your life? 
How is your heart and your attitude towards those people? Not just the ones you like and agree with, all people, because it all matters to God. The Bible instructs us in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, keep your heart with all vigilance. That's from the ESV. I really like how the New International Version puts it. It says, above all else, guard your heart. Why? From it flow the springs of life. All these things matter in our relationships with people because they're heart issues. Everything we do, how we respond, what we say, how we feel, how we treat people, how we love people, reveals what actually is in our heart. And if our heart isn't in the right place, then we won't do what God is telling us to do. You know, the world may act a certain way. They may even permit certain things. God reminds us right here in chapter 5, he's called us to be different. So how is our heart? Maybe the question for you this morning is, where is your heart? And what I mean by that is, does your heart belong to God? Have you been saved? If you're unsure or you know for sure you're not, then this is why God brought you here this morning. To reveal to you his holiness and his high calling and how we all fall short of That's what the Bible defines as sin. The Bible says when we admit to God that we're a sinner and we're in need of his grace and his forgiveness that is found only in Jesus Christ, and we believe in our heart that Jesus Christ died for our sins, he took our punishment, and he rose again on the third day that we might be forgiven and given eternal life, and we believe that in our heart to be truth and something we need, the Bible gives us one more piece of direction. We must confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We must confess that we need forgiveness before God. If you're here this morning and you've yet to accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, I'm going to stand in here. I believe Nick's going to come and lead us in a song. You just come down and say, Pastor Mike, I, I need to be saved. I need to be forgiven. But maybe, like me, this last couple of weeks, you realize that, you know what, my heart hasn't been pure towards some people. It hasn't been godly towards some people. You just need to come and kneel before the Father and stay where you are in your seat and And ask God to forgive you for that and and to purify your heart, give you a clean heart so we can love the way we're commanded to love. I want to pray for us real quick. And Nick's going to lead us in song, and I invite you to come. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us so much, Lord, that you discipline us at times to correct us, to rebuke us, to train us for righteousness. Well, I think you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. As we come to this time of response, Lord, let us not just be hearers of your word, but doers. And Father, you know the hearts that are in this place. You know them all by name. You know everything going on in their life. Lord, if there's someone here this morning who does not belong to you, they have yet to accept eternal life found only in Jesus Christ. Pray your spirit just give them the courage and the conviction to come down and let that be known to change their eternal destination. As for myself, my brothers and sisters, Christ, Lord, we come before you and we ask for your forgiveness for the times we have not been bringing you glory by how we've been in our relationships with people. Lord, we love you. We praise you for you alone are worthy of it. And praise on the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.